This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. For the last several weeks, we have been studying the book of First Peter, and we have completed that study. And it's time now to begin something different. And I think this particular season of the year is a perfect time to spend some time talking about what we celebrate at this time of the year, which is basically the Advent or the coming of Jesus Christ into the world at the time of his birth in Bethlehem. And so I have entitled today's Bible study, Advent's Necessity. Advent's Necessity. And we'll be looking at some scripture verses in Genesis chapter 3 as the focus of our Bible study. The word Advent, the definition of it is that it is something that is finally here. Generally, the noun Advent is used for the introduction of something important. In Christian churches, Advent is a season observed as a time of expectant waiting and preparation for both the celebration of the nativity of Jesus at Christmas and the anticipated return of Jesus at his second coming sometime in the future. The term Advent or Adventus in Latin means coming. The Latin word Adventus is the Latin translation of the Greek word Parousia, which is commonly used to refer to the second coming of Christ. In fact, that's the word that's used in the book of Revelation. Since the time of Bernard of Clairvaux, who died around 1153, Christians have traditionally spoken of three comings of Christ, first in the flesh in his birth in Bethlehem, number two in our hearts daily, and number three in glory at the end of time. And so this season offers the opportunity to share in the ancient longing that Christians have had the last 2,000 years for the coming of the Messiah and to be alert for his second coming. Advent begins in the Western Church, the liturgical year, in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Western Rite of the Orthodox Church, and in Protestant Church calendars as sort of the church year begins. It will include features like an Advent calendar, an Advent wreath, daily devotionals to be used in homes, And then you'll see things crop up like Christmas trees, Christmas decorations. And in churches, you'll have various festivities like the hanging of the greens and other things. It is a time when we celebrate the single most important event since the creation of the world, and that is the coming of the Son of God into our world as our Redeemer. Now, the necessity for all this goes all the way back to the beginning of creation itself. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we have the account of God's creative activity. And in the process of that, and in creating mankind as the apex of creation, God gave man one commandment, that is that he was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then in chapter 3, a being appears that we've not seen before, and it is called the serpent. And it is obvious from the text, and it is obvious from the outcome of this encounter, that this serpent is more than just a creature that God has created. A creature that God has created gets used by a malevolent entity, which we will later know in scriptural revelation as the devil, the fallen angel that led a rebellion before time-space matter was created and has been at war with God since that time and is now seeking to thwart God's activity in the creation of the earth and of the universe and of man himself. And the first 
salvo of that war involving man is the fall of man when man decided to disobey God, eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this brings a confrontation between man and God and between God and the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. And in the process of that, there are consequences that are meted out to the serpent. There are consequences that are meted out to the woman. And there are consequences that are meted out to the man. And then as a result, then all those consequences apply to us and become problematic for us moving forward. But in the midst of all of this, God promises a way to undo all of this. God makes a prophecy predicting an event which will eventually undo what has now happened between the devil and mankind. And it is found in God's conversation with the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the American Standard, it reads this way, And I will put enmity, that is, enmity between you and the woman, that is, between the serpent and the woman, between the devil and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. All right? So Messianic prophecy a prophecy of a redeemer, a prophecy of Greek word is Christ, begins right here in the third chapter of the book of Genesis. And it should be no surprise that the very first messianic prophecy would occur within the context of the fall. If sin had not entered the world, there would never have been a need for a redeeming Messiah. And so after the fall, God curses the serpent who has caused the fall and declares enmity between the serpent and womanhood. The enmity is to extend to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman, of course, is in future revelation. It's going to be obviously refers to the Christ or the Messiah. And the seed of the serpent will be the Antichrist. So right here at the very beginning, the whole divine drama that is going to be played out across the rest of revealed scripture and the rest of human history is right there in a nutshell. There's a struggle, and that struggle is going to be ended by this God-man. But now it's interesting that he is called the seed of the woman. And this sometimes caused the old rabbinical interpreters to have a struggle with this because always man is the one who has the seed. In fact, the very word seed in Greek is the word sperm. And so genealogies are all reckoned by male descent. There's a couple of exceptions in Ezra and Nehemiah But it is very rare that a woman's name is included in a genealogy unless she figured very, very prominently in biblical history or Jewish history. And so the fact that at this point, this genealogy of this coming seed of the woman is traced through the woman tells us that there will be something different about the Messiah, something that necessitates tracing his ancestry through his mother, not his father. There's going to be something really unique about the Messiah that involves him and his mother, but it will not involve a father. Now, at this point, Moses, who compiled this material for us, gives no explanation here, and there won't be any explanation given until centuries later, until the time of the prophet Isaiah, and then Isaiah will then clarify this in what we call Isaiah chapter 7, a study that we will look at, that the Messiah was to be born of a virgin and have no human father. So there is a promise Right now, in the beginning, an implication here, a promise of a divine and a human 
being that is both divine and human at the same time, who will come and destroy the devil. The serpent will bite him on the heel, which means he will wound him grievously, but it won't, in the eternal scope of things, end him. But the coming seed of the woman, the coming Messiah, will crush the serpent's head, which means eventually the work of the devil will be totally, absolutely defeated, and he will be defeated. And as far as any further impact on mankind will be destroyed, we know that he ends up in the eternal lake of fire, totally separated from the redeemed in the future, which is yet to be played out. So at the very beginning, we have this implication of the God-man who's going in the future, a miracle, a birth that involves the divine and human in a way that will bring about the potentiality of a person who can fulfill the law of God and at the same time destroy Satan's corruption of mankind. Now, to make it clear that Eve understood the implications of this, even though she didn't understand everything that was going to happen. That's going to unfold across centuries of revelation. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read about the very first child that was born. The standard translation reads this way. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. In verse 2, it reads, Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, in the Hebrew, in the original Hebrew text, the literal translation of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, is this, And the man knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Now, subsequent renderings of that passage in some of the rabbinical writings and later in the Greek and Latin translations includes the concept of, I've gotten a man with the help of Jehovah. But that's not in the original text. What she was simply saying was, in her mind, she thought she had given birth to what God had promised in Genesis chapter 3, that she had given birth to the Messiah. Well, it turns out very quickly she realized her error because the next verse said, and and again, she bare his brother Abel. Now, the, the word Abel means vanity. So it means that pretty quickly she had discovered that Cain was not the promised one who would undo the work of Satan. You know, very quickly Cain's fallen nature was on display. And uh, we later know that Cain became not the Messiah, but the first murderer in a fit of jealousy over the fact that his brother Abel's sacrifice was accepted and his was rejected. So Cain has a rebellious streak against God from the get-go. And Eve was mistaken in the fact that he was the Messiah. But she was certainly correct in understanding what God had implied was that somewhere in the future, a woman would give birth to a baby that would be both God and man. In this case, it would not have any human agency involved in it. It would be a virgin birth. But that comes down the road. But its implication is here at the very beginning. So the necessity of the advent is because of the fall of man. When our parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed, we were 
in potential in them. In Adam's fall, we all sin. That's one of the old phrases back from the days of the uh, reader that was used in New England colonies. And it's a standard doctrine of Christianity. In Adam's fall, we all sin. It's, it, it comes from the book of Romans. And so sin passed to all of us because we are all the descendants. All of us are the descendants of Adam and Eve. And that fallenness, which is a deadness of spirit, comes when we are born. And what happens at the new birth is when we believe in Christ and his finished work on the cross on our behalf, then we are rejuvenated spiritually. We are born again spiritually. And we begin a pilgrimage toward complete divine reclamation, which will conclude at the second coming of Christ. If you're a believer, it concludes at your death. And then uh, there's the ultimate consummation of it in the, in the resurrection of the believer and all that goes with everything that God has prepared for us in the future. So this passage is extremely important in understanding why from that point forward, the Bible's history is basically going to be concerned with tracing this individual and his identity so that we have no mistake as to who he is. Also, in the course of the Bible's revelation, moving forward from the early chapters of Genesis, we're also going to be tracing and learning more and more about the agent that caused the fall of man. We're going to be learning more and more about the devil, the evil one who has caused this disaster to come upon us. So at the very, very beginning, the need for the advent is clarified by God. We have sinned and we need a savior. We're not going to work it out ourselves. He doesn't say anything to man about you need to do this, that, or the other. He simply says, I'm going to provide a way for you to have deliverance. And that's going to come through the seed of the woman. Now, moving forward into history, men and women are put right with God by grace through faith as they believe in God's promises as he gives them. We're in this mess because Adam and Eve didn't believe God in the first place. When God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And literally in the Hebrew, it means dying, you will die. In other words, what will come about is separation from God. They didn't know what the word death meant. The word death does not mean cessation of being for a human being. It means separation of fellowship between a human being and God. And it has negative consequences. And so the way we are restored with fellowship with God is through God's grace and through a redemption that he will provide for us. And so moving forward in history, people are put right with God by believing, first of all, that the God who is revealed in the Bible is the only God there is. And secondly, they begin to believe his promises that he makes to them. Now, the content of those promises expand and grow as God deals with mankind. There are going to be some major cataclysmic judgments that come to man. For example, the flood of Noah because of the extenuating consequences of sin and rebellion in the human race. Later, this focus on who the Messiah is going to be will narrow. And the reason why that's important is to show that, number one, God is in control of history. And number two, it is to make sure that it's unequivocally clear as to who the Messiah will actually be. 
because we can't just believe in any charismatic leader that might come along. We have to believe in a specific person who comes and does what only he can do. Now, as Revelation is going to unfold, what we're going to find out is, is that somebody is going to have to come, a human being is going to have to come and do what the rest of us seem fully incapable of doing, and that is live a perfect life, living a life without any moral flaws or sins. And that's what the New Testament demonstrates that Jesus has done. But it is also what the Old Testament begins to prophesy that the Messiah will do. And so one of the qualifications of the Messiah is to be born from the right lineage and also to be able to perform the right works of righteousness and then to die for mankind's sin, to take the penalty of of sin, which is death, and then also to rise from the dead. So these things become clearer as revelation unfolds, moving into the future. So the necessity for the advent, the necessity for the first coming of Christ is found at the very, very beginning. And a promise of that deliverance and a promise of that advent is given very early in mankind's existence. Also, the second coming of Christ is necessary for the culmination of all those promises. So this is the holy history that now the Bible will be presenting for us as it unfolds in time, space, human history. As a person who did his undergraduate work in history, I know that the scriptural documents are without question to be believed and that the account that we have in scripture is an account that is true in every format, historical, scientific, psychological, spiritual, true. And that when we come around to this season of the year, we are celebrating something of singular significance, something that is indeed worth the celebration that we give it. May God richly bless you.